Thanks, Wilson Family Band. <laughs> Appreciate you guys this morning. Uh, good to see you guys who are here, and uh, hello to all of you who are at home. Uh, it really stinks that we can't all be together yet, um, but we will, we will at some point, and at least technology gives us the opportunity to share this experience together. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, this week, we're continuing the series that we started last week called Resist. And I'm going to jump right in uh, to where we left off last week. If you missed last week, you can always go online and listen to our podcast. But I want to begin, um, as we were last week, talking about the power of culture to impact our lives and how that's a force that influences us in a lot of ways that we're aware of and, and a lot that we're not aware of. And so I want to start with the, the definition that we used last week, which comes from the book Culture Making by Andy Crouch, which is this. Andy says, culture is what we make of the world in both senses. So culture are the things that we make, the tangible products, the things that we make, the art, the music, the, the physical products that we make. Those are cultural artifacts. But culture is also about the way that we make meaning, the way we make sense of the world. It's about values. It's about unquestioned assumptions. It's about biases. And a lot of that's under the waterline. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a huge dimension of culture that's seen, but there's a probably even bigger part that's unseen. And, and that's, that's important to us as we think about um, what we do as a community is to try and lead people in a particular way of living in the world. Last week I talked all about how we've created a mission and a vision and values all based around the teachings of Jesus as we understand them from scripture. And, and that's a culture. And that culture shapes and forms us by, by being here together and by, by participating in this service, by regularly worshiping together, by being in a D group. That forms our lives. It informs the way that we think about the world, what we value, what we care about, and the way that we act in the world. But that's not the only culture that's operative in our life. In fact, there's a lot of cultures that have impacts on us. As we think about uh, the, the different cultures that we experience, there's cultures in our family, uh, there's, there's cultures in our, in our workplace, our, our work has a particular culture, neighborhoods have cultures. I mean, heck, even our recreation has culture, doesn't it? I mean, think about skiing culture or, or cycling culture or hiking, backpacking culture. All of those things have particular values and they exert influence on us in particular ways, sometimes to buy the things that are valuable within those cultures. So it has an impact on us. So as we think about all of these different cultures, which come through people, I mean, these are transmitted in, in really everyday kinds of ways. Um, and we think about the influence that cultures have on us to move us towards following the way of Jesus or often to push us away from following the way of Jesus. We're talking about in this series, the, the things that are negative, the things that move us away from the direction that we want to go, the things that we need to resist as followers of Jesus and culture that are not helpful for us. But I have to say, as I talk about we as Christians resisting or pushing back against the culture, it kind of chokes in my throat a little bit. Like, it I kind of makes me like throw up in my mouth a little bit because, um, and here's why, because I'm a kid who grew up in the 70s and 80s in, in a church where this was done so badly. In fact, I have to say, this idea of how Christians resist culture, I've seen it mostly done badly my entire life. 
And so here's, here's why, here's how that happened, or here's my experience in that. So growing up in the 1970s and 1980s, there was a seismic shift that was taking place in our country. So, so up through the 1960s, uh, religion was a fairly important part of American life. And most of the division that existed be, existed between different peoples and their, and their religious views of the world. So, so even within the Christian world, there were Catholics and there were Protestants. That was a huge divide at one point. Um, some of you who are old enough may remember John Kennedy, John F. Kennedy being elected president as a Catholic. was That, that was controversial at the time. But over time, through the 1960s, there was a consensus that began to form, and Christians and, and Catholics, Catholics, Protestants, Jews, all people of faith began to coalesce more or less together because there was a shift that was taking place where more and more people were choosing to opt out of faith, or their faith was taking a more progressive, enlightened, educated view, which was to say that this is a nice tradition and the Bible's a nice book, but we all know that these things didn't really happen. This is just for our benefit. So, so re- literally, there began to be this split, and the, the fault line was, was basically around those who took more of a traditional view of their faith and, and believed that there, was, that there was truth that was knowable out in the world that was objective, that, that came from some higher power source. That could be nature, it could be God, the Bible, or the Torah, the Quran. And these people were more traditionalist in their views. And then there were those who were more progressive in their way of seeing the world. So these could be people that still had some affiliation to a church, but they didn't really believe the th- same things in the same way. What was preeminent for these people and for those who were just basically secularists, those who didn't have any faith or belief in God, was, was simply that freedom was preeminent. Like each individual's choice and, and we as a collection of people could choose what's true and what's right and what's wrong. And so this new axis formed what we now know as the left and the right, with the left being progressive faith people and secularists and the right forming more traditional ways of thinking. And so and this split was brought about um, by a lot of different cultural forces that were going on, and, and it was noticed and first written about in academic circles uh, by a guy named James Davison Hunter. So he's a professor at the University of Virginia, and he wrote a book called Culture Wars. The subtitle was The Struggle to Define America. Now, perhaps you've heard of this word, called these, this phrase, culture war, before. It still gets used a lot. He was actually the one who coined this phrase in the book. And what he was pointing out when he wrote the book in 1991 was that, that this fault line that existed in American culture was new and that it was around how people viewed authority and truth and how they made decisions about what was morally right and what was morally wrong. And there was contention in the country about how we would be governed based on more of a traditionalist view that, that upheld traditions and believed that truth was more transcendent, that it was objective, that it came from outside the self. And then those who had a more progressive view said, no, we get to decide for ourselves what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. And as he chose to, to describe this, this conflict, he chose to describe it as a war because what he saw was a deep divide between two different peoples who had very different cultures. The values within these cultures were actually in, anim- in animosity. They were, in- they were antagonistic to one another. And the animosity and the antagonism of both sides made it feel like there was an actual war going on. And this was 
post-Cold War, so we didn't have an external enemy to, to, to think about, to fight with. So now we were fighting amongst each other around these very important cultural issues. So what I remember from that time as a kid who grew up going to a church that was very traditionalist in nature, what I remember about the church from, from my youth group days was that the church was mostly defined by what we were against. And, and we were against a lot of stuff. I mean, we were against a lot of stuff. And most of it was, was cultural products, cultural things that got created. We, we were told that culture had a had an alternate message, it had an ulterior motive that it wanted to influence us and we needed to be careful and to keep these cultural products, these, these artistic products in particular at bay. So that included avoiding secular music. And by secular music just meant anything that was good and played on the radio. Uh, anything that you would see on MTV, which for those of you under 40, MTV is a television station. They used to play music videos, now all they play is junk and yeah. Who knows what they, does anybody even watch MTV anymore? I don't know. But I, I wasn't supposed to be watching it then because, because we were supposed to resist the culture. We weren't supposed to listen to that, that kind of music. And the same went for television and movies. You weren't supposed to watch secular TV shows or shows that weren't of sort of an approved type that had good, wholesome family values. You especially weren't supposed to watch rated R movies because those were the worst. They had bad language and they had, they had sexual situations in there. And even if you were old enough, you weren't supposed to watch that. You were supposed to resist it. And in response, there was a whole industry that emerged, a sub-industry that was specifically targeted towards Christians that, that made new kinds of music and new sorts of films. And you would go, I remember you'd go to the Christian bookstore and go to the the, the, the CDs section, the music section, this is, this is when we still went to stores to buy things. There was no Amazon. So we would go to the store and there would be a sign on the wall and it was, if you like this secular band, you should try this. So like, if you like ACDC, you should try Striper. And you would, and it would be kind of similar, but not nearly as good. And, and so this was the way, this was the predominant way that, that we were told as kids, we were supposed to resist Culture. Now, there's, there's nothing wrong with telling kids to stand up for values or to risk things, to resist things that are, that are unhelpful. We, we, we still do this with our kids, but this was mostly what we would today call virtue signaling. It, it was all about trying to promote or, or project this image of what we were like and what we resisted, and that mostly the things that would pollute us were on the outside. So we were supposed to avoid those things. It had nothing to do with our character or our values for the most part. And while we were being told to avoid all those things as kids, the adults were busy breaking a long-standing tradition in the church of avoiding politics. And they were jumping in with both feet. <clears throat> because now there was a, a move within the country that there was this division, and, and those who took a traditionalist view had to fight against the other side, and they chose to do that in largely political ways. So suddenly... The church was talking about issues in a way that was very antagonistic and, and talking about it in ways that were very adversarial, ways that were primary political about fighting for political ends against social issues like abortion or the fighting against the removal of prayer from public schools. All of these things I remember as being hot button issues when I was a kid growing up. I even remember the, de the denomination my church was, was a part of even boycotted Disney at one point. We weren't supposed to go to Disney World or buy Disney products or watch Disney movies because 
I, had, I wrote the quote down, I found it online. So Disney promoted immoral ideologies, which it was a direct response to Disney providing health benefits for the partners of their gay employees. That's why the denomination that I was part of rejected them. And so, you know, it seemed like to me most of what the church was about was what we were against. And we were against a lot of things in the world. And in the nearly 30 years that has passed since, since James Davison Hunter first observed this culture war that was going on, it's still raging. It, it's still happening. Uh, Dr. Hunter was interviewed in 2018 by the Wall Street Journal, and he talked about how this war has actually escalated over time. And what's happened is that both sides, we've hit a point where both progressives and traditionalists are now willing to sacrifice some of their most sacred values for the sake of political, advancement of political ends. He basically said they're willing to do pretty much anything if it helps accomplish the political ends that they're after. Now, that struck me when I read that article and I, and I thought about what I see playing out. And what I see playing out is, is that Christians who now occupy both sides of this divide. Because in this, the mess of this, there's been some people, some, some, are still, some people still think about their faith in very traditional ways. And a lot of them have just moved even further away from the center. They've doubled down on the culture war ideology and they've moved more and more to a posture of resisting and fighting against those who oppose them, particularly in political ways. But there are other people like me. I mean, a lot of the kids who grew up in my youth group, they're not Christians anymore. They don't go to church. They rejected the whole thing out of hand. They just basically said, if this is what the church is about, I want nothing to do with it. So they've moved to the other side. They now are considered, would consider themselves atheists or secularists or agnostics. And they actually advocate for, for more of an agenda that, that's more progressive in nature. And then I, I would say there's a whole lot of us, I would put myself in this camp that's we're in the middle somewhere. We're, we're still trying to hold on to our faith in a way that's meaningful, but, but disillusioned and frustrated and maybe a little jaded by what we see has played out over time as people of faith have seemed to take a by any means necessary approach to moving forward agendas and thinking solely through the lens of politics. And what struck me about that as I thought about it was that there's a fundamental compromise that I see going on that I think undermines everything that we're about as followers of Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the fundamental compromise that I see Christians on both sides of this divide making regularly. And to talk about that, I want to go to a section of scripture. Um, it comes from the book of Matthew, from the heart of Jesus' teaching about life and, and what it's all about. So Matthew, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Matthew's one of the four accounts of Jesus' life. It was written by a man named Matthew, who was one of Jesus' first followers. And there's a section of the book, chapters 5 through 7, where Matthew describes a sermon that Jesus gives. Now, historians and scholars agree probably what happened was Matthew presents it this way in the book, but it's probably a compilation of teachings that Jesus gave because it's so dense and so packed with these ideas and these principles that Jesus taught that there's, there's probably no way anyone could have that, you know, given or, or sat and listened to a sermon this long. So it's probably a compilation of some of the most core teachings that, that Jesus gave. And so there's one section I want to take a look at today that I, I think points out or puts its finger on the, the core compromise that I see taking place in Christian culture today. 
So starting uh, in chapter 5, verse 43, these are Jesus' words. Jesus says, you've heard it, it was said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So let me stop right here because this is an intro statement. Jesus is saying, you've heard it said. So this is popular wisdom. And this is the way that people just sort of think by default. But he's, he's making, he's setting up something that he's going he's gonna to talk about this way of viewing things. But before we jump into that, I want to talk about this word love. The word love, where he says, you've been told to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now this word love, it's important that we dive into really the, the Greek word that's underneath that. Because when we talk about the word love, we recognize that you have to pay attention to context. Because the way that we use the word love varies, right? Because we can't use the same word to say we love pizza or we love the Broncos and turn around and say, I love my mom and I love my, my kids or I love my girlfriend or my boyfriend. These are different kinds of love. And in Greek, there are four different words for love that get translated often as love in the Bible. And uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a great little book called uh, The Four Loves. It's worth reading or even better listening to. Denver Library has the audiobook, and it's actually radio recordings of him reading the original material. So I actually listened to it this week. It was fantastic. So there's, there's four different kinds, four different words that describe the four different kinds of love. And again, Lewis talks about this in his book. But the first is storge, which is affection. So that's like, I love the Broncos. I have affection for the Broncos. I, I have affection for pizza. Um, the second is philia. And this, is, this word means friendship. It means I love my family or my friends. When we use this word, it's a, it's a friendship kind of love. And then there's eros, which is romantic love. So romantic love would be I love my girlfriend or my boyfriend. I love my spouse. But the last word, and the one that's really important to us and to, to what we're talking about today, is this word agape. Agape. Agape is the word that gets used over and over in the New Testament for the way that God loves us and for the way that we're called to love other people. It's a selfless kind of love. In his book, Lewis explains that, that, that agape love, is the all, it's the all give and the no take. It doesn't expect anything in return. He, he differentiates that the first three types of love are natural sorts of loves, that everyone experiences these kinds of loves, and they're about what we get in return. We, we love the Broncos when they're winning because they're fun to watch, and they make us feel good about ourselves and our, and our, our hometown team. And we love friends and family because they make us feel accepted, and they make us feel loved. And we, we love our girlfriend or our boyfriend or, or our, our spouse because there are biological processes going on that it makes us feel good physically and emotionally. But agape is different. Agape is a sort of one-way kind of love that, that's not about what we get, and it's not about the object of our love. In fact, it allows us to love the unlovable. This is, this is why the Apostle John writes in 1 John, he says, this is love. So this is his definition of agape. He says, this is agape. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love, to agape one another. So throughout the scriptures, you see that this is the way that agape works. God shows his love for us, that even when we were his enemies, Christ died for us. It's a one way. It's not predicated. It's not because that we're so lovable or so good. God chooses to love 
us. And Matthew says, this is the word that came out of Jesus's mouth in this verse that we just looked at. You've heard it was said to love, to agape your neighbor and to hate your enemy. Then he drops the bombshell. Then he turns common sense upside down. You've heard that taught. That's common sense. But I tell you, verse 44, love, agape, your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? So Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, if you truly want to be a child of God and to know the love that he has for us, then you've got to recognize that that love is is given to you so that you can give it to others. That that it's not about that, that God didn't love you because you were so lovable. He loved you even when you were unlovable. He loved you when you were his enemy, when you wanted nothing to do with him. And Jesus says, that's the the kind of love that that you're then supposed to give into the world. And and this kind of love became the center of the Christian church. This message, this idea of love for enemies became a transformational concept that was completely different than any other religious system that had ever existed. Author Preston Sprinkle talks about the adversity that was faced by the early church and how this, this love for enemies became a hallmark of their life. He writes, Jesus's command to love your enemies was the most popular verse in the early church. It was quoted in 26 places by 10 different authors in the first 300 years of Christianity, which makes it the most celebrated command among the first Christians. Matthew 5.44 was the so-called John 3.16 of the early church, and enemy love was the hallmark of the Christian faith. Other religions taught that people should love their neighbors. They even taught forgiveness for those who wronged them. But actually loving your enemy? Only Jesus and his followers took love this far because this is how far the love of God extends to us. While we were God's enemies, Christ loved us. So my question is this. Where is this kind of love in the culture wars? Where is this kind of love being expressed by followers of Jesus in our divided age? Where is this kind of love being expressed in the differences and in the divisions that separate us? I think one of the primary places that we need to reject one of the values that's going on in culture is is this win-at-all-costs mentality. I think we need to resist animosity. I couldn't think of a word that captured it all. Resist animosity, hatred, anger, division. You choose the word, us versus them, win at all costs. Resist that and embrace self-giving, self-sacrificing love. That is the heart of the Christian message. That is what we're called to do. That's the kind of value that we're to bring into the world and into these discussions and conversations and disagreements that we have with people who don't see the world the same way that that we do. So so am I saying in that that we can't engage in politics, that that we can't participate in, in active debates or discussions about important issues of our day, important issues like race and racism, important issues like 
like immigration or healthcare? Am I just saying we have to sit on the sidelines and be nice, play nice? No, I'm not saying that at all. <clears throat> I'm simply pointing out how we engage in these issues is important. The how is always important to Jesus. It's the ends do not justify the means because the ends are not ours to control. They're his. So what does it look like to, to begin to resist this sort of animosity and to engage in agape love? What would it look like for us to shift our behavior, to shift our words and our actions, to center around agape, especially in times of division or in separation with friends or coworkers or family members who take such a hostile posture against the things that we believe? What would it look like for us to begin to do that? Well, there's a helpful checklist that you're already aware of. You, you've heard it at every wedding you've ever been to. And we confuse it that somehow this is about romantic love. But, but truthfully, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, he, he says love, agape, self-giving love. And then he gives some descriptors. He says agape is patient. Agape is kind. It's not envious, it's not boastful, it's not proud or self-seeking. It doesn't dishonor others. It doesn't get angry easily. It protects, it trusts, it hopes, it always perseveres. I think that's a pretty good filter. I mean, I think when you come up against situations where, where you're dealing with people or you're, you're in a situation where you read something that that uncle of yours posted online. It, it's some forward about some conspiracy theory about how coronavirus was invented or created by the libs. And you're just about to own him and talk about how ignorant he is. Maybe that would be a good time to use this filter. Is, is my response coming from a place of trying not to dishonor him? Is it patient? Is it, is it kind? Is it absorbing the hurt or, or is it just simply trying to turn that back on that person? So before we join in conversation with friends about politics, where we're running down this politician or that politician, or, or, or before we're just talking about how stupid, you know, and how terribly our governor has handled this or that, before we engage in those conversations, I just think we need to use this as a grid to ask, are we acting in a loving way, if we can't be loving in how we engage with others, even those who we would consider to be our enemies ideologically, then maybe we don't need to participate at all. Maybe we do need to take a step back. Maybe we need to take a few minutes to get to the place where we're reconnected and refilled with the love that God has for us. I have a friend who says in these moments, he says, I just tell myself, I got to take about five minutes to get to Jesus because if, if I respond now, they're going to get all me and that's not good. I need to find a way to reconnect with that love that God has for me so I can give it to other people. Now, <clears throat> you may be here today and you may be listening to this and you may be thinking, I am so sure this is so stupid and idealistic and this is just the kind of dumb thing Christians say. This is so unrealistic. In the real world, stuff has to get done. And in the real world, sometimes you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. This is just how the world moves forward. And if Christians can't deal with that, then they just need to, they just need to disengage. Okay, I hear that. L let me just offer two thoughts about that way of thinking, that that's not, that that's not realistic, that's overly idealistic. 
we've gotten to the situation where we are with that line of thinking, that any means necessary can be used to achieve the outcomes that we want to. And where, where are we? Are we seeing progress? Do we feel like this is the best version of our country that we, we could possibly imagine? And secondly, let me ask this. Do we really feel like we have that much control over shaping culture? Do we feel like we as individuals can really change things that much? I'm going to rely on the words here of Dr. James Davison Hunter again, who wrote another book. Just a few years ago, he wrote a book called, uh, it's called How to Change the World, The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. In that he said this, he said, cultures are profoundly resistant to intentional change, period. Christians need to abandon talk of redeeming the culture, advancing the kingdom, and changing the world. Such talk carries too much weight, implying conquest and domination. If there is a possibility for human flourishing in our world, it does not begin when we win the culture wars, but when God's word of love becomes flesh in us, reaching every sphere of social life. When faithful presence existed in church history, it manifested itself in the creation of hospitals and the flourishing of art. The best scholarship, the most profound and world-changing kind of service and care. And care Again, not only for the household of faith, but for everyone. Faithful presence isn't new. It's just something we need to recover. Faithful presence being the manifest presence of God's love in the world, that might actually make a difference. That might actually be radical and revolutionary enough to do something. But you know what? Whether it does or not is not up to us. The world is not ours to change. It's Christ's world to change. He didn't call us to change the world. That's his job. He called us to be faithful, to love one another, to love others, to love our neighbors, even those who we consider our enemies. But to do that, to really do that, it will take us receiving God's love, letting it transform us and flow out of our lives and into others. And that's not a one-time thing. That's not something you did once when you accepted Jesus. That's a daily sometimes hourly practice of reconnecting to the reality. It doesn't matter. Jesus died so that I don't have to worry about what this politician or that politician said. Jesus died so I don't have to worry about owning the changing of the world. That in the end, it's all going to be okay. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. Eventually, Jesus will change the world. We can trust him with that. We need to fill ourselves with God's love and remember that that's the core of who we are. And I, I can't think of a better way to do that as a group today as we start a week together, as we go out into a world that is still divided and is still hostile than by celebrating communion and remembering God's love for us.